How many of you are, are so grateful that this thing called Christianity or faith in Christ is not about a list of rigorous rules and regulations, but it's about a relationship with the one who loved us and gave himself up for us? How many of you are glad that, that our faith in Christ is, is not about lugging along uh, a huge bag of, of past sin and guilt and regret and fear and failure, but rather it's freedom in Christ, a relationship with the one who set us free from our past. This thing called a relationship with Christ is not groveling around in, in our guilt, but rather it's, it's standing firm and strong and it's rejoicing in the grace of God. How many of you are grateful for that? Just put your hands together and praise Jesus if you are. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ made possible by his blood that was shed on the cross. It is not a list of rigorous rules and regulations. Again, if you, if you agree to that, just, just put your hands together if you do agree to that. That's, that's the heartbeat of the gospel that we preach around here. There's a story about a man who, who was trying to pray, but his, his prayers were always clouded by guilt and regret from his past. He was trying to serve in ministry, but he was always passive. He was never passionate. He was trying to reach out, but he always felt like a hypocrite because of some things that lied way in his past. And there was a lady at his church who claimed to be able to hear from God. She, she claimed that God spoke to her. So he tested her ability, and he said, okay, if God really speaks to you, Tell me about my sin and my past that is holding me back. And she said, well, I'll have to go home and pray about it to hear from the Lord on that. And he said, okay, that's fine. So throughout the week, he thought about it. And, and the next Sunday rolled around and he, find that, he found the lady and he nervously asked her, well, did God reveal to you the sin in my past? Did God give you an answer? And she said, yes, he did. And the man said, well, what did God say? And she said, well, God said, I don't remember. Now, whether or not the lady in the story really heard from God or not, I don't know, but this much is certain. Her theology is utterly rock solid. Listen to this in Isaiah, a prophecy about the gospel of Jesus Christ when we place our faith in Jesus. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Why does he say for his own sake? Because the thought of Jesus being crucified on the cross and shedding his blood to wash away our sins, to redeem us from our past, to cleanse us, to make us his child so that he can spend forever with us is for his sake because he loves us so much. God says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I will remember your sins no more. You see, God chooses not to remember our sins because he's forgetful, but rather because he forgives absolutely and utterly and thoroughly perfectly. When we place our faith in Jesus, the blood of Christ washes away our sins, past, present, and future, and we stand before God perfect in his sight. Not only are our sins forgiven, but we are clothed in the very righteousness of God. I was, I was speaking at a, a, a conference for single adults years ago and sharing the word with them over the course of a weekend. And, and I could tell throughout the weekend that everybody was really struggling with something from their past. And so I asked on one night everybody to write their past sins or regrets or 
fears and failures that are holding them back on a piece of paper. And they all wrote something on a piece of paper. And so I gathered all the pieces of paper and I said, we'll meet back and continue with this session in the morning. And the next morning we all gathered together and, and I said, okay, this is our path. This is what's holding everybody back right here. I said, you guys follow me down by the, down by the lake, down by the shore. So we, we all went down by the shore together and I put all of the paper in a bottle. And I filled the rest of it up, you know, the remaining part of the bottle up with water so that it would sink. And then I, I, I read this verse right here that, that he blots out our transit, he blots out our transgressions for his own sake because that's how much he loves us he considered the cross as a brutal of a beating as the cross was he doesn't even consider that for our sake although it was but he so loves us and so wants a relationship with us and so wants to spend forever with us in heaven that he considers that for his sake and then he'll remember our sins no more and then I took the bottle and I said, so this is a brand new beginning. We are going to walk in our rightful identity, that we are forgiven in the righteousness of God. And I threw it as far as I could, and we gave our pasts a decent burial as we watched our sins sink into the place that they belonged, the abyss, the sea of God's gracious and perfect forgetfulness. Now we're in a series on Hebrews, so now we're entering into Hebrews chapter 6. And this is, a, this is a very difficult portion of Scripture. In fact, I dare say it is the most difficult portion of Scripture. For somebody like me who especially believes and teaches eternal security. In other words, once saved, always saved. And so it's a very difficult portion of Scripture. But I, I opened with that because when we do follow Jesus Christ and we enter into a relationship with Jesus, our sins are forgiven, separated us as far as the East is from the West. The Bible says that's an eternal distance. Notice, the Bible doesn't say he separates our sins from us as far as the north is from the south, because eventually the north touches the south. But he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. If you go east, you will always go east. If you go west, you will always go west. It's an eternal distance. And what happens once you've trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you stumble... If you sin, if you fell, if you enter into a season of spiritual disobedience and rebellion, willful sin, let me ask you a question. After you become a follower of Jesus Christ, has anybody here ever willfully sinned? What happens? Does God dive into the sea of forgetfulness, bring our sins back up? and choose to remember once again what he's already promised, that he's eternally forgotten? Does God take from us the, the robe of righteousness and put a robe of our, 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 our moral failures back around us? Well, if you read Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, which is the text, it sure sounds like he does, which is why this text has created a lot of confusion. But this text is actually saying just the opposite. It's saying that Christ will never allow you to slip out of his grip. However, we can't just simply gloss over this critical and important text, because if we do, it would be to the demise of some people's souls who are right here. It's an interesting text, and I'm excited to teach it 
and walk through it with you this morning. Let's just read it and then let's pray. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then to have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whom sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its, its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. What an important passage for all of us this morning. I'm so grateful that you're here. I believe that our faith is going to be edified greatly together to seek the face of Christ and to share the gospel of Christ with everyone everywhere. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, your grace and your mercy. We praise you for that sea of forgetfulness that has utterly buried our sins. We thank you that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, so did our sin. And when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, so did our hope. And when we placed our faith in you, our sins were forgiven, and we were clothed with your righteousness, and you chose to remember our sins no more. To you be the glory. Open up our hearts to understand this text in a manner that that compels us to seek you with passion and to share you with everyone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And let's just once again give it up for the worship team. That was incredible. So, Hebrews chapter 6. Let me just start out. We're going to make four observations on Hebrews chapter 6, and there's a Bible in front of you if you want to follow along in the bulletins that you were given. There's an outline with the references and scriptures that you can follow through, and, and, and I hope that you do. If you pick up the Bible in front of you, just go to the very last book, the book at the very f- furthest right of the book. It's Revelation. Flip a few books to the left, just a few, and you'll land in the book of Hebrews. So, let's start. Usually, when I teach through a text... I don't like to teach what it doesn't mean. I just like to plow through and teach what it does mean. But in the case of this text, because this text has absolutely split churches, split denominations. Uh, Denominations have been built over where they stand on this text or don't stand on this text. I think that it would be prudent for us uh, to pause for a moment and teach from what, according to my understanding of Scripture and my conviction, what this text doesn't mean, and then let's plow right through it and talk about what it does mean. This is one of those passages of Scripture that if you get three people together in a room, you'll have seven different opinions on what this particular text means. But let me start by making this statement. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, does not teach that you can lose your salvation. And this is because although this particular scripture is difficult to grapple through, we have to line it up against the weight of a great many other portions of scripture. So let's just walk through many portions of scripture that um, very clearly, very adamantly, very succinctly communicate that once we are in the grip of Christ, nothing can snatch us out, and once we are in Christ, we cannot be out of Christ. First of all, 
And then once we talk about what this doesn't mean and then talk about what it means, we'll talk about how this is applicable to our lives today. First of all, we read in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John the Apostle writes, These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. Eternal life is not a guessing game. I hope I have it. I hope I don't have it. If you get in your car and you go on a long trip, you don't have a guessing game. I hope I have enough gas in my gas tank. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. You look at the gauge and you make sure. You better know that you have enough gas to arrive at your destination. Eternity is a long journey. Let's make sure that we have eternal life. We can know that we have eternal life. We can know that we have enough gas in the gas tank, so to speak, by knowing that we have the Holy Spirit in our heart. We can know that we have eternal life. You can know it. You can be certain of it. You can be absolutely sure. Jesus himself says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Have you all heard this verse before? So that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have, watched this, everlasting life. Everlasting life. It's not temporal life. It's not conditional life. It's everlasting life. Once we're a Christian, this is the life that has been offered to us. This is the gift. It's not a gift of conditional life. It's a gift of everlasting life. And then again in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus didn't save us in order for us to finish up the saving. He saved us and he will sustain that salvation until he leads us safely home. He who began a good work will complete it. The doctrine and the conviction of eternal security is not a conviction so much in my goodness as it is the sufficiency of his salvation. It's not a conviction on, 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 on how straight I walk, but it's a conviction on how sufficient my Savior is who forgave my sins, chose to forgive my, forget my sins, and clothe me with his own righteousness. And then in Romans chapter 8, we read again, looking at the sufficiency of our Savior. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. It is simply confidence. The doctrine of eternal security is simply confidence in the sufficiency, the thorough sufficiency of our Savior to complete the good work. He called us and he will glorify us. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39 reads, For I am convinced, watch this, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depths, watch this, nor anything else in all creation, I'm a something in all creation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even myself. And you say, well, hold on a second. This is all based upon God will never leave you, he'll never forsake you, but you can choose to leave him, you can choose to leave the family. I believe that is a very short-sighted, minuscule, microscopic understanding of the totality of our thorough salvation. As we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. A new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. In other words, a caterpillar can become a butterfly. 
Can that butterfly ever go back and become a caterpillar again? No. Why? It's a new creation. The old is gone. How could the butterfly ever go back and become the old again? The old is gone. It ceases to exist. It is no more. Now, from time to time, that butterfly might forget it's a butterfly and try to crawl like a caterpillar, and some other butterflies will have to come along and say, what are you doing? You're not a caterpillar. You're a butterfly. Spread your wings and fly. In the same way, when we receive the Holy Spirit, we are born again. We're a new creature. The old is gone. The new is come. We are the righteousness of God. From time to time, Christians live like the old life and need to be reminded by other Christians, what are you doing? Walk out your identity. The old is gone. The new has come. Now live like it. And then Jesus then begins talking about the sufficiency of his eternal grip. He says, I give them eternal life. Again, not temporal life, not conditional life. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Eternal life, incidentally, doesn't begin when we die here on this earth. Eternal life begins the moment we are saved. And then one day we'll shed these bodies and the new creature, that spirit that's been merged and born again by the spirit of God will live forever in heaven. And Jesus says about this. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You see, salvation is not our grip on Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ's grip on us. Our grip has loosened from time to time. Christ's grip will never loosen. And nobody, he said, can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And we read in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified again that word justified it's a legal standing we we are justified past present and future sins we are justified he's chosen not to remember our sins any longer they were crucified with christ we therefore have peace with god and in ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 and 14 in him also after listening to the message of faith the gospel of your salvation having believed watch this you were sealed sealed in him with the holy spirit of promise who will never leave you nor forsake you, by the way, who is given as a pledge or a deposit of our inheritance. We're sealed. We have the Holy Spirit that is given as a pledge or deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven, guaranteeing it. In John 3, 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, to receive the Spirit of Christ and become a new creation is to be born again. The old is gone again. How can we become the old again? And if we're born again, how can we be unborn? The author of Hebrews says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. And Peter writes, we are protected, our salvation is protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed. Who protects it? The Holy Spirit who seals us, who's a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven. The hand of Christ in which nobody can snatch us out of his hand, and even if they could, Christ is in the Father, and nobody can snatch us out of the Father's hand. And we read in Psalm 97, Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. And in Hebrews 7, 25, God is able to save forever. He will save forever those who draw near to him. And he always lives to make intercession for us. We read in Ephesians 4, 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit who sealed us. Again, the Holy Spirit sealed us. So don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave us or forsake us or abandon us. We grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by, by doing things that, that, that cause him grief, by walking outside of the will of God. And in John 6, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall not lose any of those that he has given me. Did you hear that? 
Jesus said, whoever the Father has given me for salvation, I will not lose one. Not one. Jesus himself said, I will lose none of all of those that the Father has given me, but I will raise them up at the last day. So, either Jesus is a liar, or Jesus can't live up to what he said that he could accomplish. Or he's telling the truth, and he has the power to accomplish what he said he would accomplish. And that's preserve everyone who has ever come to him for salvation in his mighty grip of grace. And then in John, Jesus said, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, Father, that the world may know that you have sent me. In other words, we're in Christ, the Holy Spirit's in us, and Christ is in the Father. Even if Satan could rip us out of the hand of Christ, the Holy Spirit is still in us, securing our salvation. And even if he could somehow take the Holy Spirit out of us, he could never pull us out of the grip of the Father in heaven. I mentioned to you guys a few Sundays ago that there was a spider, and I killed it three times. I sprayed it with poison, I stomped on it, and then I sprayed it with poison again. It was triple dead. That's kind of like our salvation, just the opposite. We are triple saved. The Holy Spirit's in us, we're in Christ, and Christ is in the Father, and nothing can pluck us out of that mighty grip of grace. So can you go on living however you want? Of course not. Just, if you have a heart like that, then you need to get saved. Just because we can't lose our salvation doesn't mean there's still not so much to be lost. I've seen people lose their families. I've seen people lose their ministries. I've seen people lose their testimonies. I've seen people lose the peace of God. I've seen people lose the joy of God. I've even witnessed dear friends lose their own lives, but they did not lose their salvation. In fact, this context even teaches directly and more metaphorically. We can go right here to this context, and the author of Hebrews speaks both directly and metaphorically, saying that we cannot lose our salvation. Let's look first at the direct uh, teaching that we cannot lose our salvation, and then we'll look at the metaphorical analogy saying that we cannot lose our salvation. Verses 9, the direct teaching. After he finishes talking about this, reading after the, the, the text that we had read, he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In other words, what we just read was not salvation. It was not real salvation. But what we speak of in your case, real salvation cannot be lost. And the Father, he goes on to say, isn't going to forget about his relationship with you and the things that you've done for him. That is secure when we talk about real salvation. And then metaphorically in verse 7 and 8, we read, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated. It receives a blessing from God. So you have a picture of a piece of land, and the rain falls. And some of it produces things that are useful, like a harvest, wheat. But still there's other places on the land, and it produces thorns and thistles. What's the land? The land is our soul. What is the rain? It is the word of God. It's the Holy Spirit. It's salvation. And this is no different than at the last days. The, the sheep and goats will be divided. The wheat and the tares will be divided. This is the context of a local church assembly. Probably 50% of the people here are saved. Biblically speaking, half are wheat, half are, half are weeds, half are sheep, half are goats. Half will produce, uh, upon hearing the word of God, a harvest of righteousness. And half, upon hearing the word of God, will produce a harvest of thorns and thistles. 
So in looking at what this does not teach, now let's look at what it does. Hebrews is a letter that is full of warning. We read in the first five chapters of Hebrews that we've read so far, warnings such as don't drift away, don't disobey, and don't deny, and don't go into unbelief, and your heart will grow hardened as a result of it. So some people, especially who believe that they can lose their, uh, who do not believe that you can lose their salvation, uh, try to simply explain this away without diving into the, the, the flow and the context and the theme of Hebrews, and that is walking in faith in a severe warning, severe warnings not to drift away from that faith. And so we'll try to gloss right over it and say, well, it's a hypothetical saying that since it clearly says that if you fall away from salvation, you can't repent again, and because that would be to crucify Christ again, therefore, we know that you can never fall away to begin with. One interpretation of this text is to teach that it's simply a hypothetical, therefore, you can't fall away. It's saying that you can't fall away. But that, again, would be to veer away from really the flow of Hebrews, which is pretty intense warnings. It is a severe warning. It is a severe warning not to drift away from Jesus Christ. But if you recall, the book of Hebrews is also a book of contrasts and comparisons. Do you remember? It compares and contrasts Jesus with the angels. Jesus is far superior. It compares and contrasts Jesus with Moses, and Jesus is far superior. It contrasts and compares Jesus with, with the high priesthood and the Levitical system, and Jesus is far superior. It contrasts and compares grace and the new covenant with the law and the old covenant. And so this is a warning to the local church, no different than what we might read, for example, in the book of Galatians, not to give up the grace of God and return again into something that is far less, that is far inferior than Christ and grace, and that is the old covenant and the law. And these are probably three of the scariest words in all of Scripture. It is impossible. Those are absolutely devastating words. It is impossible. It says, let's read verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age have come, and then who have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. That's severe, isn't it? Notice, however, that the text does not say it's impossible to restore them again to salvation. Because we are about to lay out the case that he's not talking about those who are saved. It doesn't say that it's impossible again to restore them again to salvation because in my understanding, they were never saved to begin with. It says that it's impossible to bring them to a place of repentance. And we could cross-reference this with Romans chapter 1 verse 24. When the very worst thing that could ha that happened to a group of people that could happen to anybody, when it says that God gave them over to what they wanted. Oh, the last thing that you and I want is for God just to simply give us over to whatever it is that we want. And he gave them over to their depravity and their lusts and their hatefulness and their bitterness and their envy. To a point that it comes to a point that somebody has been so grown so callous to the Holy Spirit that it's impossible for them to even come to a place of repentance. 
Can God save them? Of course God can save them. Is the sufficiency, is, is the blood of Christ sufficient for their salvation? Absolutely, of course it is. You look at the book of uh, Psalm chapter 51, after David's gross sins of adultery and lying and murder, God restored to him the joy of his salvation. He didn't restore to him a salvation because he never lost his salvation, but he had to restore the joy of his salvation. And I look at my sins, and I know if God can cover my sins, God can cover any sins. And if God can cover your sins, God can cover anybody's sins. It's not talking about, uh, it's impossible to restore them to a place of salvation. The blood of Jesus can cleanse anybody of any sin. But they have grown so disobedient to the Holy Spirit, bringing them to a place of trusting in Christ, that it's to a point for some people, it's impossible for them to even come to a place of repentance. But he's speaking of a very specific group of people who it's impossible for them to come to a place of repentance. And so let's continue reading. Hebrews 6, who is it to? It's to the unsaved in the local church who appear to be saved. It's to the unsaved in the local church who appear to be saved. Watch how much these people absolutely look like Christians. Let's look in verse 4. For it's impossible in the case of those who have, watch this, once been enlightened. It looks like they're saved. I mean, what is more closely associated with Christ and Christianity than being enlightened? They've tasted the heavenly gift. We know that salvation is a gift, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. It's not by works. It's a gift. They've been enlightened, and Jesus says, you are the light of the world. They've tasted the heavenly gift. We know that salvation is a gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. It looks like they're a Christian. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then they've fallen away. And it's those people that it's impossible to bring to a place of repentance. They look saved. But they're not saved. We know that they're not saved. One, because we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And when we started out in talking about what this text doesn't mean, we looked at many verses, a great weight of Scripture, a great preponderance of Scripture that outweighs an obscure verse. So we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture, and we have to say, what does this verse mean? We also know that this is not referencing salvation, because if you teach that you can lose your salvation, according to this verse, according to this verse, if you teach it in that fashion, you have to go the whole way and teach, if you were saved and fall away and you've lost your salvation, you can never come back again. And we know that's not the case. We know that's not the heart of God. And we know that's not the greater weight and preponderance of Scripture. And we know that this is not talking about you can lose your salvation because the text, the context itself teaches that you can't. As we read again in verse 9 when he said, this is not of those who've inherited real salvation. And of you, we are confident of more certain things. And then the word picture of the land that represents our souls and the gospel and the spirit that falls on the land. And some receive it and some don't. So it looks like they are saved, but they're not. 
And this is why it is absolutely so critical that we don't simply gloss over this text. But we slow down and we back up and we look at it. A misteaching of this text can do two absolutely damning things to people's souls. One, to those who don't have salvation but think they do. We'll gloss right over this text and never evaluate whether or not they're truly in Christ. And they will be of those who will one day look to Jesus and say, did we not say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. They looked saved. And they said, did we not cast out demons and prophesy and do all sorts of things in your name? And Jesus said, I never knew you. They looked saved, but they were not saved. Which is why it is an incredible disservice and harm to souls to simply excuse this text as a hypothetical which couldn't happen, therefore we gloss over it. No, this is in the flow of warning. And so we pause and we say, is this my soul? Do I simply look like a Christian, but I am not a Christian? And the second harm that, and damage that this soul, that this text, misteaching of this text can do to a soul, it's for someone who's truly secure in Christ to not move on to deeper relationships with Christ because they feel they have to get saved every single Sunday. Instead of being secure in their salvation and walking in their freedom and their identity in Christ and boldly making their requests known and passionately worshiping Christ. So we see that they've once been enlightened, but note that they were not the light of the world. Did you see that? They were enlightened, but they were not the light of the world. Can you think of an example in Scripture, a very clear example, where somebody was enlightened, but they were not the light of the world? How about the rich young ruler who walked up to Jesus and said, and said what must I do to inherit an eternal life? And he was relying on his own goodness. And Jesus, he measured him up, and he pointed out the area that he was trusting in himself. And Jesus said, go, sell your possessions and good, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler walked away sad because he had great wealth. He was enlightened but he was not the light of the world. Or how the apostle Paul said, the gospel of Jesus Christ is an aroma. To some it is an aroma of life, to others it is an aroma of death. Even to those in which the gospel of Jesus Christ is an aroma of death, even they were enlightened, but they did not become the light. Notice that it says that they tasted the heavenly gift, but it does not say that they received the heavenly gift. Notice it says that they shared in the Holy Spirit, but nowhere does it connotate that they were baptized or immersed or received the Holy Spirit. They tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers to come. What are the powers to come? It's the supernatural power of God, the kingdom of heaven and on earth. They tasted of the goodness of the Word of God like everybody's doing here, tasting of the goodness of the Word of God when Luke shared a word or Robbie shared a word or Cassidy shared a word and, 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 and Brandy shared a word and we, and we sang and we're, we're, we're preaching the Word and Sunday after Sunday the, we have hope-inspiring sermons and people share in the goodness of the Word of God, but they only shared in it, they only sampled it. They didn't actually receive the word of God. And they shared in the powers, they tasted in the powers of the, of the heavenly realm. But these people saw firsthand the miracles of Jesus Christ, and they saw firsthand the miracles of the apostles, and yet they didn't receive it. They simply sampled it. 
which goes back to they looked a lot like a Christian. I mean, they were enlightened, they tasted, they shared, they tasted, they looked like a Christian, but they weren't. So it's so critical that we don't just look at this text and gloss through it and say, that's a hypothetical, you can't lose your salvation, that doesn't apply to us. No, we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, do I look saved? But I'm not saved. Isn't that a critical question? Because isn't eternal life a long journey? And shouldn't all of us look at the dashboard of our life and evaluate whether or not we have the salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ? And then it says that those who were once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers to come, they fell away. But we have to cross-reference that and interpret scripture with scripture. And we read in 1 John 2, 19 that if somebody falls away, John writes, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not have, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. In other words, they looked saved, but they weren't. Matthew 7, many people will say on that day, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they'll say, did we not cast out demons and, and prophesy in your name? And he says, I never knew you. They looked saved, but they were not. They even thought they were saved, but they were not. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24 through 30, is the, Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the weeds, which is so similar to this illustration that the author of Hebrews plants right in the middle of this text in Hebrew 6. There's a crop and there's, there's weeds in it and there's wheat in it. And people who worked the land went to the owner of the land and said, at night somebody came and planted weeds in your crop and so the weeds and the wheat are growing together. Do you notice to pull all, the, all of the weeds out? And the owner of the crop said, no, 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 because if you pull out the weeds, you'll unintentionally pull out some of the wheat with it. Just let the weeds grow with the wheat. We'll harvest it all together, then we'll finally separate it, and then we'll throw the weeds in the fire, but the wheat will be useful. So we all have to look at this text and ask ourselves, are we saved or unsaved? Are we, are we wheat or are we weeds? Or are we sheep or are we goats? Are we Christians or do we simply look like Christians? Which brings us to the final conclusion of this text, and it's a plea, it's a warning to enter a relationship with Jesus and not to return to a system of rules and regulations. And this is the context of this text. For five chapters now, and then for five chapters after this chapter, the author of Hebrews has been emphatically saying, Jesus is superior to Moses. Why are you tempted to return to Moses? Jesus is superior. Grace is superior to works. Why are you trying to return to works? The blood of Christ is superior to the blood of animals. Why are you trying to return to sacrificing animals? Which is why the author of Hebrews then seals the... the the argument with this punchline, so to speak, that might not make sense to us if we don't understand it in this context. In verse 6, he says, if you return to a system of rules and regulations, you're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What does that mean, 
crucifying the Son of God all over again. A fall from grace back into works. And understand, these guys were not falling from grace into immorality. Do you know that? This is, this is really critical to grasp this text. They weren't falling from grace into immorality. They were falling from grace back into works. They were falling from trusting in Christ as being sufficient for the salvation and this, for, for saving and sustaining their souls. They were, they, they, they were falling from trusting in Christ to trusting in their own morality. They, they, they were falling from trusting in the precious blood of Jesus that was shed and washed away my sins once and for all to trusting once again on the sacrifice of animals that occurred year after year after year in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement, which never removed one sin. It was just a proclamation. It was a prophecy. It was a foreshadowing of Jesus who would one day be born. They, they weren't in danger of following from, from morality to immorality. It was from, from grace to works, from the blood of Christ to the blood of animal sacrifices, from trusting in Christ as saving them and being sufficient to sustain their souls, to trusting in their own goodness and their own morality. Because year after year after year, in this Levitical system, which predated Jesus Christ, they had to sacrifice animals once a year on the Day of Atonement, read about it in Leviticus 16, and these guys wanted to go back to that system. And the author of Hebrews was saying, why in the world would you want to go back to that system? Like you, 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 you had to circle up and sacrifice a lamb or a goat on the Day of Atonement year after year after year. Do you want to, you want to circle up on Golgotha and crucify Jesus Christ year after year after year? That's ridiculous. Why would you do that? As Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Christ sacrificed 2,000 years ago, split time in half, B.C., A.D., and it was utterly sufficient to cover all sins before him and all sins after him. And he's saying, why would you want to fall from grace to works, from circling up and sacrificing animals, which was only a proclamation of Jesus who would one day die on the cross? And why would you possibly want to go from trusting in Christ, whose blood is entirely sufficient, to trusting in your own morality, which fails every single day? And so, our takeaway from this is twofold. To the saved and to the unsaved. To the saved, this text assures us that we are saved, and we are forgiven, and we are the righteousness of God. That means that you don't have to walk in guilt and regret and fear from the one whose hands are scarred with, with, with nail holes and open wide. Return to him. Return to your first love. Return to him. Condemnation is from Satan Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Anything that keeps you running from God is not of God. That is not the Holy Spirit. Return to Christ. Return to your first love. He's the only one who can satisfy your soul. He's the only one who can give you peace. He's the only one who can fill your heart with joy. Return to Christ. Nothing can take the place of Christ. Return to Him. 
And to those of you who perhaps you look like you're a Christian, but you're not, this text causes us to stop and to pause and evaluate. Is the gas gauge full? Because eternity is a long trip. Is the Holy Spirit in my heart? And so to those who are trusting in themselves, you must receive Jesus Christ. You must receive Jesus Christ. Many people spell Christianity, Dio, things you do. You do this good, you do this good, you do this good, you don't do this bad, you don't do this bad, you don't do this bad, Dio. And one day you'll stand before God and he'll have this scale and if the good do's outweigh the bad do's, God says, come on in. That is not what Jesus was about. Now I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, that works don't result from your salvation. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But faith that saves is never alone. It is always accompanied by uh, working out. We don't work for our salvation, but our salvation eventually works out in us. It's a sanctification process. When the Holy Spirit comes into our heart and we're born again, then He begins leading our life. And it's a process, but we begin looking more and more like Christ. Some people spell Christianity, Dio, things you do, things you don't do. And that was not what Jesus Christ was about. This text is about Christianity. is spelled D-O-N-E, done. It's done. It's done. Anything we need to do to go to heaven has been done by Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. And he said, it is finished. And we receive what Jesus Christ has done through faith. Not just believing it intellectually or historically. Even the demons believe and tremble, the Bible says. But through saving faith, it's trusting. We believe that Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the world. He died for my sins. And we don't just believe that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We trust that he's my king and he's my Lord. And we trust that Jesus' blood on the cross washed my sins away. And the Holy Spirit at that moment will move into our heart. See, salvation is not a process. Sanctification, becoming like Christ is a process, but being saved by Christ is an event. It's like a flash of lightning. Now, many things go into a flash of lightning, right? The, the air has to be just right and, and all of these things, but uh, and a process may lead up to that flash of lightning, but the flash of lightning is an event. And in the same way, a process goes into us coming to a place where we repent of our sins and trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior where God, His love wooed us and He put people in our life and drew us to a place where we repented of our sins and trusted in Christ as our Lord and Savior. And at that moment, like a flash of lightning, the Holy Spirit enters our soul and we are born again. We are a new creature. We are heaven bound. We are in the mighty grip of God. And that salvation is spelled D-O-N-E, done. Jesus Christ did that on the cross. It was complete. And we can't add to the blood of Christ with any sort of good works to buy our way to heaven. The blood of Christ is sufficient to wash away our soul. All we can do is simply humble ourselves and receive what has already been done for us on the cross. And at that moment, we're a new creature. So, our action steps this morning are critical. For those who are in Christ, rest in that salvation. Be secure in that salvation. 
We had a dear lady. I love her to death, but every single Sunday, she checked on the guest card. I prayed to receive Jesus Christ today. And she never moved past. She never moved beyond the fact that she was saved. It was an event. It happened like that. And she's in the grip of Christ. And nothing can ever snatch her out. And so she can, she can therefore boldly enter the throne room of God. And she can worship with complete assurance that she's forgiven in the righteousness of God. To those of you who have stopped trusting in yourself and at some point have trusted exclusively only on the blood of Christ and the resurrection of Christ to forgive you of your sins and to save your soul, you're safe in Christ. Stop running from Christ. Return to Christ. Return to your first love. You will find satisfaction nowhere else. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit. Return to your first love. And for those of you who look a lot like a Christian, you look like a sheep, but you're a goat. You look like wheat, but you're a weed. You look like a lot like you're saved, but you're unsaved. You've been relying on yourself. Just as these people in Hebrews, they were writing, the author of Hebrews was writing to, they went from trusting in Christ to trusting in themselves, or they never trusted in Christ. They, they preferred a, a system of works over God's system of grace. Stop relying on yourself. What good work could you possibly do that would earn your way into heaven? That is necessary after what Christ has done for you on the cross? You will always look down at, on people. You will always be condescending. You will always have anxiety. You will never have true joy. You will never have peace. You will always struggle with pride. You will always be ambitious in this earth until you stop placing your confidence in yourself and you finally trust Christ and Christ alone as your Lord and Savior. And then, and only then will the Holy Spirit enter your heart and will you be born again and a new creature and heaven bound. Did you know that a day that I wake up and I read the Bible and I pray and I drink a cup of coffee and I was pretty good that day. I maybe coasted through a stop sign instead of fully stopping at it. Maybe I didn't give somebody a few bucks who asked me for a few bucks. But, but then again, I went to a meeting and encouraged somebody. And I wasn't just a stellar spiritual rock star that day, but also wasn't just a horrendous spiritual failure that day. On that day, I was just pretty normal and I still stand only by the blood of Christ. And then there might be days that I go out there and I just stumble and fall time after time horrendously and I don't even look like a Christian and I still stand by the blood of Christ. And then there are days that I might have fasted and memorized scripture and gave all I had to the poor and I still stand only in the blood of Christ. Our boast is in Christ and Christ alone. So would you stand with me please? So if you would bow your heads, to those of you who are saved, perhaps you need to return to Christ and seek Him with a passion, with a fervor. The only response to the one who gave His life for us is to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And for those of you who perhaps have been uh, just resting in your own goodness, in your own works, man, it's time to repent. Because you can only act like a Christian for so long. You can only pretend to be a Christian for so long and, and share in the goodness of the Word of God and experience the presence of the Holy Spirit and taste and see that the Lord is good without repenting and trusting in Christ before your heart becomes so callous that repentance is just impossible. So 
today is the day that you repent and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Christ and Christ alone. Would you, if you just, if it's time for you as a Christian to return to Christ, to return to your first love, I would just like to pray over you. Would you just raise your hand high? I hear you. Father, you see these hands, and we pray in Jesus' name that these saints would return to you with a holy passion. Thank you for never leaving us nor forsaking us. Thank you, Lord, instead of from running from us, you grieve and you discipline, Lord, but, 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 but you never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, we return to you with the whole heart, and we seek you with a fervor and a passion. And now I wonder, perhaps you've been trusting in yourself instead of Christ, and this might be an epiphany this morning. This salvation isn't about what you do, but it's about what Christ has done. If that's you, I would just like to pray over you. Would you raise your hand high? All right, well, praise God. Praise God. I just want to pray with you. Um, we're all going to pray with you to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's transferring, the, salvation is transferring your assurance, your confidence in your works to Christ's work. Your works will never be sufficient. Christ's works, it's already sufficient. You just have to receive it by trusting it. Everybody pray audibly, pray boldly to encourage the person next to you. Pray, pray out loud. Father, I know I have sinned. I can feel the emptiness in my heart that has separated me from you, but it has not separated me from your love. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for shedding your blood to pay for my sins. I trust in what you've done for me on the cross. You died so I could live. I receive that as my salvation. Thank you for paying the price of my sins. Now, Jesus, come into my heart and be my Lord. Take over. Save my soul. I don't place any confidence in me, good or bad. I place all confidence in you. And you are sufficient. You are a sufficient Savior. And help me to fall more in love with you. Thank you for loving me so much. Now help me to be secure in this relationship that will last forever. Praise you for eternal life. Thank you for making me your child. Now help me to grow in this new life. And in response, let's just worship. Um, perhaps you want to come down here and just repent of something. And so, There's something about stepping out and coming down and repenting that's a very tangible experience with the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you just need to come down and repent. Perhaps you just need to come down and worship. Perhaps you just need to raise your hands both high and, and worship Christ. But let's just respond uh, to Christ.